0: Hello, and welcome back to Control-Alt-Delete. My guest today is Dr. Tom Chatfield. He is a writer, broadcaster, and tech philosopher. He is a columnist for the BBC and a TED speaker, and he's worked as a writer and a consultant with some of the world's leading technology firms. His books explore digital culture and have been published in over two dozen languages. I first read Tom's work when his book, How to Thrive in the Digital Age, came out in 2012, I think, with The School of Life, and I basically followed his work ever since and I'm just so interested in what he's always up to so really glad that he's back on the podcast because he came on a few years ago. He recently wrote a non-fiction book called Critical Thinking which was a best-selling textbook and he's back with a new textbook called How to Think which I thoroughly enjoyed. I just love that he talks about thinking, about how we can think better, think more deeply, question ourselves more, question each other more, call ourselves out and kind of realise our blind spots and our ignorance And also just say, I don't know more often and not be afraid to get things wrong. I think it's really, really important. So I hope you enjoy this episode. I definitely enjoyed catching up with Tom and picking his brain for a good 40 minutes. So if you enjoyed it, please do let us know. We'd love to hear from you. And here is the conversation with Tom. So I'm Thrilled to welcome back Tom, if I'm being official, Doctor Tom Chatfield. And you came on the podcast a while ago, and it was one of my one of my favorite episodes, I've got to say. And now you're back, so thank you.
1: Hooray! I'm, I'm <laughs> very excited to be here.
0: I love all your work, and I just really like how you think about things. Which, you know, on that topic, your new book is called "How to Think," which is such a great title for a book. I didn't know what I was going to get when I dived in, but. Covered all of the things I wanted from this book. It was I learned a lot, and it's universal and timeless. I feel like anyone at any age at any time could read it, but it's very of now. It felt in the context of where we're at. So why do you want to write it now?
1: Well, um, I write, you know, among other things, textbooks, and I, I'm very interested in helping people. I think. Books should try and be useful, or at least it's a lovely thing for for a book to do, a non-fiction book to do. And I've written a number of textbooks about critical thinking and study. and spent a lot of time, you know, with students of all ages and so on. And I found myself, you know, with with a, the chance to write a new book and, and the world going crazy. Um, and you know, sort of terrible and bizarre things happening. And I just had this very strong feeling that if the stuff you're teaching You know, is any good if you, if you really believe that saying, Oh, you know, you should, you should think about reasoning and evidence and so on. This stuff is useful. Then it's very, very important to try and put your money where your mouth is, so to speak, and show, well, actually we're living in a time of profound change and anxiety and uncertainty. So all this stuff, these thinking tools, let's try and show what it might mean to apply them in real time. To a profoundly uncertain situation, and it's that uncertainty. So I, I start off the book with with a point. I guess I'm obsessed with, which is the profound difference between two types of time. So on the one hand, there's the cloud of uncertainty that we all live in, unfolding events when we are just desperately trying to make sense of the world as we go along, and on the other hand, there's how we remember and resolve our experiences into kind of patterns and narratives and stories, and When we do that, we're engaging a totally kind of different aspect of our minds. It's the really important aspect of our minds that that helps us learn together and explain things and and build understandings. But it's very dangerous as well because we tidy everything up. Things relentlessly seem obvious in retrospect. And I thought, well, just maybe I can try and write a book where I'm talking about, you know, reasoning and logic and collaboration and all these things I, I believe in. But, but I'm, writing almost as a kind of journal, talking about what's going on in the news and constantly saying to my reader, look, you know, you're going to know more about this now than I am as a writer. So, you know, call me out if I get it wrong, if I'm grappling with stuff and sort of revealing my limitations. You know, these are very important lessons where the kind of theoretical meets reality. So it was a lovely chance to try and pull these things together for me, you know, in quite kind of personal project that I hope is... Is useful to people um, in, an, in an interesting way, you know, in a way that they can relate to.
0: It was so interesting and it was really nice hearing your voice in real time. And it was almost like a little time capsule because there's a bit in it where you're talking about March 2020 and it's there there you are at your desk. And it was actually quite comforting hearing someone speak about the past and then talking about hindsight, because I don't know if you meant this, but it's almost like an anxiety tool that actually we can handle whatever life throws at us. Because in hindsight, it all makes sense all the time.
1: That's a really good point, and I it was very therapeutic for me. Um, you know, I was at home looking after my children. I'm, I'm a very privileged person. You know, I've I've got enough of a kind of a life and career and security that I could. Unlike a lot of people, you know, kind of shut, shut the doors of the house, so to speak, and concentrate on looking after my family and just trying to get through the day to day while still writing, while still kind of pursuing my, my interest and my passions. And it felt very therapeutic to me that I was trying to set these things down. But yeah, the time capsule aspect, it did remind me that there is a great benefit to thinking about the present moment and not to getting sucked into The kind of apocalyptic or appalling sort of large narratives that swirl around at these times of anxiety. One of the great words of the pandemic is doom scrolling. You know, Mm -hmm. I think it was the Oxford Dictionary's word of the year. It's what we do late at night when we can't sleep. We scroll through the endless screen and the world's kind of subconscious, the paranoia is there, you know, and truth is there as well. But it's all mixed up and trying to make sense of this. And so I did feel. That there's a lot to be gained from talking about inhabiting the present moment mindfully if you like. And I I do write quite a bit about time and attention because I feel, especially when I, you know, kind of talk to younger people and try and work out what's going on, that unless you're able to pause and take a moment and observe yourself and gain some kind of equilibrium, none of the other good stuff can happen.
0: Mm, I the, really like that about the pausing.
1: Yeah. And, and, and I must give a shout out to Robert Poynton, who's a friend and an author. He's written a wonderful book called Do Pause. I, I hope I'm allowed to give a shout outs, but yeah. it's a very influential <laughs> book on me because, it, again, it's like having Rob in the room saying, it's okay to pause. You don't have to stop. You don't have to disconnect. That's not really possible for many of us. I think that's an impossible standard. It's okay just to pause and take a moment and gather yourself and observe yourself and and ask yourself how you feel about your feelings, mm-hmm. how you think about your thinking. It's very liberating to, to give yourself permission to do these things.
0: Mm-hmm. And in the context of social media, then, because we are just in this doom scrolling time, I guess, it's it's funny with doom scrolling, because I feel like that is projecting so much onto the future. It's like the opposite of being in the present moment, you're just constantly panicking about the past or the future. And I think what was so interesting about your book is this, yes, pause, but also identifying your own ignorance. That feels like a present tense thing to do.
1: Yeah and and of course social media is amazing it is this amazing tool it's this amazing tool for exploring your ignorance and it's absolutely right that if you if you don't take an interest in your own ignorance you can't learn stuff you know you need to take a really careful interest in in what you don't know and of course what i don't know is what you don't know is most things our heads are very small and the world's <laughs> very big but how to turn social media and the kind of riches of the internet into something that that is if you like kind of life and mind enhancing i've i've been kind of thinking about this stuff for years and you know a lot of it i think comes down to selective engagement to having kind of heuristics shortcuts rules of thumb for just helping you not get emotionally and personally and informationally overwhelmed and one of the great things you can obviously do is, is follow great people. Is mm-hmm. seek out people who who act as a kind of human search engine, who filter the world for you, who speak to you, who aren't like you but but who you want to hear from. And I think the the other thing is just to remember that there are massive distortion fields operating online, particularly around emotional intensity. So it, it's kind of blatantly obvious, really, that you know the least viral thing I could possibly say is you know what. I'm desperately uncertain. I'm not sure what to think and I don't know what's going on. I mean, no one's going to retweet that or they might give me a sympathy retweet. Whereas if I say I've got very, very strong feelings about this immensely impactful story that will obviously have more kind of viral potential. But we can push back against this because you know there are spaces and communities and modes of discourse that are more amenable to doubt, to the confession of uncertainty. People are willing to make themselves accountable to data. People are willing to Take you by the hand, and you know, two of the great things we can do are to ask for help and to confess uncertainty. And I sometimes think of those as the sort of keys that unlock a lot of the human goodness that's online. Mm-hmm. You say, "Look, I don't know what to think. I, I'm I'm lost. Where can I find someone who knows about this?" And also, you know, what do you think? These these questions, rather than statements, can really kind of flip around. Often, the sort of vortex of strong damaging emotion that that it's easy to get sucked into.
0: And I love following people like that. And that's why I love your work so much. I I really like people who aren't afraid to have this like, kind of, Jamie Bartlett, I think, said that the meaning of liberal actually means you look at things from all sides all the time and you just are very curious as a person. And I like that. But I think Twitter is full of people that never do that. Is, is it human nature to want th- to be right all the time? I mean, you look at in the book at the vaccine argument and how it's like someone's taking a side immediately. Why can't we say we don't know?
1: <laughs> well, it's human nature, of course, to want contradictory things to contain multitudes. I, I think one of the sort of frightening things about, if you like, human nature as a phrase is that it's quite plastic is that we, we genuinely are in some ways different people in different circumstances amid different prompts and communities. The person online who is broadcasting, if you like, a hateful or intolerant message might be in the setting of their family or their community or their home or, or, or a different moment. They might show deep compassion or empathy. The great challenge for me is then to look at the contexts rather than get sort of sucked into pe- an essentialist narrative, where say so people are like this, people are intolerant, people are wicked. Let's give up on the human race; we're all doomed. No, and you can say what are the circumstances and prompts and communities that call forth, if you like, the better angels of our natures, or to be a bit less grandiose, that make us less horrible and more accountable. And there is a lot of stuff out there around this. On the one hand, there's the sort of skin, the skin in the game idea, you know, where people are sort of risking something of themselves reputationally, you know, where anonymity can be dangerous, where people are acting in certain kind of official capacities. On the other hand, there's kind of small accountable communities or private groups. You can get much better behaviors sometimes in kind of private groups than you can in personal groups. And then, of course, there's, if you like, the incentives embodied in information ecosystems themselves. And I suppose put very briefly, you know, much of social media is an engine for generating outrage. And we've seen, you know, electorally, politically, scientifically, this can be, you know, lead to deeply disturbing results. But it doesn't mean people are bad. Yeah. And often it's small numbers of very influential people playing the game very brilliantly and very cynically. A lot of the leading anti-vaxxers, they may or may not believe what they're saying, but they're in it for the power and the money and the influence. And really something like anti-vaxxing. You can only, I think, hope to understand and challenge as part of a bundle, as part of a package. People don't do things, you know, sort of for, for, for one set of reasons, for one thing. Our beliefs come in bundles. I mean, it, it makes no sense that, for example, something like gun rights and abortion should be yoked together because, well, why would someone predict their beliefs? Why would it be so predictive that someone believes for one and thus they believe in the other? There's, you can only make sense of these things by looking at political tribes, by looking at networks of influence, and by looking, I suppose, at beliefs as really a shorthand for a lot of people of saying, "I am like these people, and I'm not like these people. I'm not like you. I'm I'm like these people."
0: And it's, but that's so fascinating, isn't it? That we a lot of people do kind of label groups of people from afar and. I probably do it sometimes and I really try not to but what was interesting in the depths of the pandemic is I noticed people were taking photos of a busy park for example saying these people are selfish and I'm like but you're at the park too <laughs> <laughs> so like we're, we're disconnecting from each other when actually we're all probably doing the same thing but I I thought it was really interesting in your book I, I underlined this this part of the book because it went against actually something I believe myself and I was like No, you're right. Um, That technology is not neutral. This idea that social media is this sort of just a tool that we use and actually we put our stamp onto it. You said it was one of the most pervasive myths. Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. So this is something I guess I've come to believe quite strongly because it's a very, if you like, comforting and persuasive myth. That technologies are neutral tools and it's how we use them that counts. And that, of course, can align with all sorts of good things like saying, well, you give people technology and you educate them and you have a kind of decent setup and regulation and so on. And then, you know, the technology is just a tool. You can use it to do great stuff. And in some ways that's true. But I, I absolutely feel that if you look carefully at any technology, it has embedded biases. It makes it easier to do some things and harder to do other things. I was talking about social media ecosystems. And fairly obviously, certain kinds of highly emotive statement, expressions of extreme confidence, are far more likely to gain traction in an ecosystem, in a technology where people can reward stuff by by sharing it and by commenting upon it. And of course, there's a business model underlying it, which is about aggregating data and then selling services based on this data. So the more interactions you get, the better. And this stuff can very quickly become invisible to us unless we think about it. And the moment you start thinking about technologies like this, I think you then gain a really precious way of talking about the difference between you know, the way things happen to have been made and some of the, the values and opportunities that, that you might believe are important. And so, for example, cities built around cars. Now, it's not that they are bad, full stop, but they are a certain kind of thing. They are biased towards certain kinds of space. They are biased against walking. We've been to Los Angeles. You know it's not a great place for going for a stroll <laughs> because it's built around the automobile. It's a tremendous place for cruising in a car provided you don't mind sitting in traffic for about five years. Um, and you know all of our technologies bring in a very complicated way, you know, certain new possibilities, certain potentials for action. There's an old saying in economics, sometimes referred to as Goodhart's law, um, which is um, any good measure ceases to be a good measure when it becomes a target. And so really that for me highlights the difference between a neutral measure of how many people are doing this in social media and a target as in we need to get as much engagement as possible. So the moment you measure something, you create a whole load of incentives to make that number bigger. You know, let's let's fund our business with that, let's get engagement, let's try and get loads of podcast listeners. You know, the incentives are there. And that which you don't measure isn't incentivized, and you know, that which isn't counted doesn't count. And so, you know, fairly obviously on the pandemic, as you say, social media, the news, it doesn't measure and count so many of those private moments of of silence. It doesn't tend to measure and count. The millions upon millions of people doing the decent thing, getting on with their lives and being considerate. You have to remember that there's an embedded bias in technology predicated upon novelty and outrage and engagement. It's not just a, a problem with um, new or social or digital technologies. You know, It's just a, a fact about the world. But it allows us to negotiate. And that's, I suppose, where I'm at, an informed negotiation with the values embedded in technologies and tools. That's that's a hopeful place to be, because that can be a collective negotiation and it can be a conversation about what we want and need and deserve and owe to each other as people, rather than just about how we using Twitter we can try and make Twitter better, which you know, which maybe we can't.
0: It's so interesting because I think this might be a more more of a niche thing but being a creative in a world of algorithms is really hard sometimes because I think if you want to write the things you want to write or make the things you want to make but you also at the back of your mind think oh I've got to please this publisher or I've got to get these numbers I feel I do feel bad for maybe young people coming up now who feel like they have to have some sort of technology skill as well as just being a creative person.
1: It's a pretty challenging landscape. You know, I'm, I've just turned, turned 40. Um, I'm officially very old. And I do think, you know, there's tremendous opportunity now. But also there really is a tyranny of kind of numbers and impacts because you can, as a publisher or as someone who, in a sense, whose business is to, to, to work with successful creatives. And, you know, the, it, you both benefit if you do well. But there's a lot of numbers that will tell you in advance what audience someone brings with them. And that also creates, you know, an incentive that if someone has a certain audience on Instagram, if they have millions of people on Instagram, they probably work very hard on Instagram to create that audience. And maybe they produce fantastic content. But of course, you can then effectively pay someone else to ghostwrite a book for them. And you've got perhaps 500,000 pre orders for that book. It's great news if you're a publisher. But if you are an author or a potential author who could write an amazing book, let's say, um, it's that bit harder for you. To get the attention of a publisher. And it's that bit harder for an editor at the publisher to go into a meeting and make the case and say, well, look, you know, on the one hand, yes, we're publishing this and we reckon we can get half a million pre sales based on the Instagram numbers. On the other hand, there's someone here who's just writing some great stuff. They've got a blog. They're an interesting thinker. They're original. They're coming from a left field place, but they're brilliant. So I, I really want to publish their book. And you know, we might sell four or five thousand copies, and then they, on you know, their next book might sell more. The world's always been like this, but I think we live in a more extreme version Mm -hmm. of that world because there are so many kind of measures around. Because at least on paper, it's so easy to sort of look at, if you like risk-free creative endeavours where people come with an audience. Yeah. Um, and it's one of the reasons actually I, I I write a lot of different kinds of book for a lot of different kinds of audience. But I I really value kind of writing sort of textbooks and academic books just because to some degree it's in a slightly different world where it's not as dependent upon garnering attention in the first few weeks. You know, the sales patterns are different. The, the whole relationship there is different. I'm not saying it's better, but for me at least... It's a little bit less stressful than feeling that if I'm not getting a lot of attention within four weeks of publication, I'm probably a bit of a write-off. Mm-hmm. So far as the kind of publicity is concerned,
0: it's a, it's an interesting conversation because I do think that um, after reading that bit in the books, I I always thought I thought technology kind of was neutral that we all had the same app on our phones, so therefore isn't the playing field completely level but you're so right it it, it rewards certain behaviors and then that behavior taps into basically an industry as a whole i know for, i know that my like little opinionated kind of sassy tweets get more retweets and i think oh god i'm kind of fueling that part of my personality that i don't really want to <laughs> um but moving on to more about you as a thinker i just wanted to ask you know you wrote this book in the pandemic you have um children you have th- lots of things going on you're you write fiction non-fiction other things how and how do you do your best thinking do you need to get into a zone like how does it work
1: i mean the, the children are a big thing you know i've got a 5 year old and a 7 year old so there's a school run in the morning and the school run in the evening and lots of washing and cooking and cleaning um which is which is great you know which is a privilege and which sort of keeps you anchored to the world I am quite an introvert and, you know, the props and the routines of a good day for me tend to include in no particular order, some exercise, reading something interesting that has nothing to do with what I'm writing, quite a bit of coffee, and then, you know, sort of time at my computer with my thoughts. I don't really get writer's block. I'm not that kind of a writer. Um, I write a lot, um, which may or may not be a good thing, but it sort of works for me. What I guess I have got quite good at over the years is knowing myself enough to sort of have a whole little bag of tricks that that sort of stop me from just sitting there staring at the screen feeling terrible about myself, which is, you know, a lot of writers do that a lot of the time. You sit there and you mm-hmm. think, I'm a writer, the clue's in the name, and I'm not writing, therefore I'm a bad person or I'm a failure. So I I don't sit at the screen sort of feeling nothing. I go out, I get a bit of variety, I do something else interesting i am quite introverted so i I tend to go to people's books i read a lot of sci-fi and speculative fiction um i play a lot of video games or quite a lot um (laughs) i've been playing a lot of slay the spire during the pandemic Mm -hmm. which is a ccg a a card-based game um i won't bore your listeners with it but it's it's it it certainly takes a big box when i play the piano a lot Um, And I have lots of deadlines. I mean, I love deadlines. I love a deadline. I put it in my diary and I try to be a professional and deliver to that. But I guess the point is one of self-knowledge and humility. Willpower is overrated. Willpower, the idea that you sit there and through your mighty willpower call forth a masterpiece. No, for me, at least you put yourself in situations and circumstances that, that kind of allow you to do work, that kind of tease it out of you. When you get stuck... You, you print it out, you take it elsewhere, you move around, you do something, you, you, and you embrace the fact that you, you're never going to produce the perfect work, You know that, that you can just try and get better. Mm. You, know, you can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. I think a lot of authors and creatives, and people who perhaps could write or could produce creative work but don't, have in their head something so perfect and beautiful and wonderful that they never dare to start on it, and that's, that's a terrible situation because probably they could produce something absolutely great if they gave themselves permission to just start and then to find a way to keep going.
0: Yeah, I really relate to that, and I know Seth Godin, I think, says that there's no such thing as writer's block because if someone phoned you, you would speak to them, so therefore you should be able to kind of <laughs> write at any time. And I think making peace with time as small chunks being meaningful has really helped me. I used to need like a whole day free to do writing, and now I'm happy with like a spare hour and get quite a lot done.
1: Yeah, good hour. I mean, there's there's almost. A thing, that one good hour, the day's all right if all the messiness and bits and pieces, somewhere in there, there's the one good hour, the hour in which the stuff flows or the ideas click into place. Um, and uh, Oliver Berkman's written um, very, very beautifully about this online in mm-hmm. terms of giving yourself permission to be kind of messy and inefficient a lot of the time and just find one or two good hours. And I think there's a lot in common, I think, between all these sort of tips and tricks and heuristics and, and, you know, and good thinking in, in that you do the work. You find a way to get it done. You, you take a moment. You take a pause. You're pragmatic. You're not trying to be perfect. You're not trying to get the final word in. You're not trying to stand up there and, you know, publish the perfect tweet that kind of nails the issue. You're trying to get by day to day. Get words and ideas in place. Reflect upon them. Iterate. Find ways of working. Do it again. Keep going. It's um, it's very helpful sometimes to sort of cut yourself as much slack as possible, mm-hmm. just so that you can have material to work with.
0: Yeah, the self-compassion thing of like, you know, you're doing it at least. <laughs> and Oliver Berkman, that article you shared of his on his blog has changed. I want to say changed my life because <laughs> genuinely, uh, it made me realise that I was actually bog getting bogged down in the routine. It was almost like the routine had to be perfect in order for the work to happen. And actually, what I had to do was make peace with the chaos. And he says, just have a few good hours, and then the rest of the day can be a mess.
1: Yeah, absolutely, make peace with the chaos. It strikes me as a good pandemic motto. Mm. You know, we've we've had a an unbelievable last 18 months and it's been profoundly different for different people you know it's been it's been beyond awful for some people and it's been a bit inconvenient for some people um but i think this idea if there's anything that positive you know that can be, can be taken from the times we've we've lived through it's it's perhaps that things can kind of change more and more suddenly than than you think they might. And you and other people can change more in response and be robust in response. I feel the one pandemic prediction, if you want to play that game, that I feel very few people made was that, you know, in the very early stage of the pandemic, that hundreds of millions of people would be prepared to make enormous sacrifices Mm -hmm. every day for month upon month upon month. And basically society would just keep on ticking over you know, with, with some exceptions, with some explosions, with tremendous loss, and so on. But that people were robust. You know, it doesn't make a great Hollywood movie, does it? If I, you know, three years ago, we're pitching a script, and we say, okay, here's the here's the pitch. Global pandemic, huge restrictions put on daily life, economy shut down, world travel ends. And here's the thing, people basically just get on with it. Mm-hmm. And, and they'd be like, what do you mean? that's not a movie that's not a that's not a plot people just get on with it no no there's there's anarchy there's riots government's fault you are like no no they just (laughs) no. here's the thing most people just get on with it and and do their bit and and you know young and healthy people who are less vulnerable make sacrifices for older people they've never met in their millions and you know and gradually a whole bunch of scientists come up with some vaccinations that offer a protection against the virus and um you know, I know that's a terrible movie. There's, of course, a structural bias in, in storytelling as a medium. And, I'm, you know, stories are a technology. I, I'm not being facetious. Stories are how we understand the world. But to go back to the point I started with, there's a constant tension between, you know, the stories we tell about the world and the way we experience it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the amazing power of the human mind and civilization and culture, of course, lies in our ability to talk about cause and consequence and to shape things. But there's also danger in that because we tidy everything up relentlessly. We forget just how confused we are when it comes to the day-to-day.
0: Yes, yes. That makes me feel so relaxed, just admitting we don't know. <laughs> it's it's such a, good a nice thing. It's a great statement. You know,
1: go on social media, go online. Yeah. I don't know. I what don't do you know. think? Exactly. You know, just tell me about this. Compare notes.
0: The interesting thing for me during the whole pandemic was this idea that basically, it was said that most jobs were not essential. <laughs> that was a weird thing. To to literally think you're telling us a lot of our jobs don't aren't really they don't really matter. <laughs> and I was like, wow, that's a weird time we're in. And also the fact that key workers who are so essential need to be treated better. I guess that was the underlying learning of it all.
1: Yeah. I I think there's something very healthy about being reminded that how much you get paid is pretty detachable from how much good <laughs> your work does. You know, the person who is delivering shopping or taking away waste, or of course, caring for people in hospital or a care setting, they're going to be paid orders of magnitude less less than the person moving around shares and stocks. Mm. But what they get paid is a function of the amount of money attached to those roles. The amount of money that can be made, to some degree, the, the the degree of exploitation that can go on, it it's not a function. It's totally detached from the societal or ethical value of those roles. Mm. And I think, I hope that a very large and healthy dose doth- dose of respect for those who keep the world going day to day is is not going to go away anytime soon.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. That that the the standard of kind of money and status is, you know, like many standards, it only tells you so much. There's an awful lot it doesn't tell you. Um, And it's extremely important that we're reminded of all the Mm -hmm. stuff it doesn't tell you.
0: Yeah, I hope so. Because in those times where we needed literally like the basic survival almost, those people that helped that happen were very, very important. Um, So I thought we'd end on, if you don't mind, a really quick like fire round of three phrases or terminologies that I learned from your okay, book and you yeah, could just yeah. describe them. Let's go for it. Okay. So I love this. The unknown unknowns and the known unknowns. <laughs>
1: so I've <laughs> I've borrowed this from Donald Rumsfeld, among others. It's, it's going to be in a military doctrine for a long time. It sounds like gibberish, but it's such an important point because there's there's a huge difference between the things that we know we don't know. And so, for example, let's say that I want to buy a computer or go to the shops or whatever. Now, I know that some of the important unknowns are going to be, you know, what is a good quality computer? How much does it cost? Who's making good computers these days and so on. So those are my known unknowns. And that's really useful. That's my list of stuff to find out in order to make a good decision. But then there's my unknown unknowns. That's the stuff I don't even know I don't know. So that might be, for example, that actually there's a huge vulnerability in the software of computer manufacturer X, or that computer manufacturer Y has a kind of incredibly unethical policy, or that computer Z is full of asbestos or something like that. And the point about these unknown unknowns is that they're really, really important things that I don't even know I don't know. And so if we want to think rigorously, we need to try to get our unknown unknowns onto the list of known unknowns. Mm. It's, In other words, we need a really good shopping list of questions. And one of the most important ways we can come up with a good shopping list of questions is talk to a bunch of people and explore something in a kind of open way. So if you like the 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 really important question is what are the good questions I need to try and answer if I want to make a good decision about this? Mm -hmm. So someone might come to you and say, you know Emma, I, I really want to get into podcasting. I haven't got a clue about it. You're amazing. What should I be what are the questions I should be asking? What should I be trying to find out in order to make my way in this world? And that would be that would be an incredibly valuable conversation for them, I would think, because they would turn a lot of unknown unknowns, you know, podcasting. What what even is that? How do you get into that? They would turn that into known unknowns. They might come away with 10 questions and be like, yeah, 10 areas to research. Mm-hmm. So actually it sounds kind of weird and abstract, but it's just a super practical way of trying to come up with a a powerful shopping list of questions that will help you make a a good decision.
0: Yes, definitely. It's it's like so obvious in the phrasing, but but I didn't really know I needed to know it, (laughs) which is very meta. Um, And also that is what's really great about your book is it's actually the questions are almost more interesting than the answers, which is probably the way of life. The other thing I wanted maybe you to talk about was what constructive doubt is, because I thought (laughs) that was just so... So good. <laughs> yeah, so I, I I put the word
1: constructive in front of doubt because I'm very kind of fed up with the idea that it's bad to doubt something. it's bad to be skeptical. And I say constructive doubt in order to distinguish doubting something constructively from two other things. On the one hand, there's what you might call extreme relativism. And that's saying, well, you know, you say this, I say this, they say that. It's all the same. We all have our own opinions. Anything goes. That's that's about as much as we can ever say. That doesn't hold water, most of all, because why should I believe anyone who says extreme relativism works? I mean, I've got my envy that it doesn't. So there we are. And then there's cynicism, which is, if you like, extreme dismissiveness. And cynicism is to say, you say that, but you would say that because you're in it for yourself you're biased, you've got your own motives. Ultimately, you're only after self-glorification. So I'm just going to dismiss what you say. Between these lies constructive doubt. And to doubt something constructively is to be unsure, but deeply interested in what it might mean to become less unsure. And so it comes a little bit back to this idea of good questions. Mm. If I'm constructively doubtful about a vaccine, it doesn't mean I think well vaccines don't work they're rubbish or you know scientists would say that because they're all scientists and they work for vaccine companies it means I say well you know I'm genuinely not sure whether I should get vaccinated or whether they work so I want to take some steps to try and work out what's going on so I'm going to try and find some good studies some people who know about this a diversity of different points of view I have got to look at the numbers you know millions of people are being vaccinated all the time so let's see what's happening. I'm going to treat my doubt as the beginning of a constructive process of becoming you know, better informed and less deceived. And I'm not going to end up with perfect certainty. I'm not going to arrive at a certain point where I'm like, now I know the definitive answer and I'm in possession of the ultimate truth. But doubt can guide me along a path of, if you like, incrementally lessening uncertainty.
0: And so it's all can, about moving
1: forward. Exactly. Yeah. Taking small steps. And, and doubt is what guides you because if you start off certain, then the, the process doesn't happen, right? If I start off saying vaccines are unnatural, they're bad, well, that's that. Mm-hmm. and Until some doubt enters my mind in a constructive sense, I've got nothing to do other than repeat that point very loudly. Yeah.
0: By the way, I know it's getting progressively cold in here, so sorry. <laughs> it's literally freezing now. I'll edit this out, but we're nearly done. But I'm really noticing it's getting it colder. I've got, I've got my layers. I'll tell them that next time. Um, and then the last thing, I hadn't heard this before, actually. Or maybe I had, but I didn't know what it meant. Building a straw man.
1: Oh, I love, I love this. It's such a vivid phrase. Building a straw man is when you caricature someone else's argument or perspective, just as though you're building a straw man like a, like a guy to be burned on a bonfire so for example if i was in politics you know i might stand up and say my opponent believes that we should just be giving criminals money and getting rid of prisons which is obviously stupid now i would be caricaturing my opponent's perspective in order to dismiss it in order to try and make them appear ridiculous and the point about this is that it's it's good rhetoric you know, if I want to get people in 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 politics going here, here, you know, it, it's great if your aim is to kind of destroy someone or, or or beat them like you're in a fight. It's absolutely terrible if what you're interested in doing is trying to find a way of persuading other people that you have a good point or working with other people to try and find some common ground or or a better understanding, and so. A great thing to do in in arguments and debates, if you are interested in kind of actually building understanding, is instead of a straw man, to build a steel man. And a steel man, as the name suggests, rather than burning on a bonfire, is the strongest possible expression of their point of view. So you might say, well, my opponent thinks that prisons are too punitive and don't reform people. Now, they've got a point if we look at recidivism, and so on. We can see that there is a strong argument in this favor. However, where I disagree with them is about what should be done, and so on. And instantly, by building a steel man, you're into a territory whereby you're putting your own ideas to a meaningful test. You're potentially reaching out to people who disagree with you, by showing that you understand that they they have some reasons for doing what they do, and most preciously of all, you're potentially sort of building something in common together that might actually be a better expression of what's going on in the world, because there is a real world out there. You know, it's like it's like you know, pandemic, climate change. We face we face a lot of wickedly complex problems, and the world doesn't care what we think. If we can deny reality all we like, reality is still going to do its thing. So, you know, we really do need ways of working together from a variety of different perspectives to try and better explain and understand what's going on. So, you know, straw men, they're everywhere. It's so Mm -hmm. tempting. I don't like you. I don't like what you're saying, or I feel threatened. I build a straw man. You're just a silly person saying a silly thing. Instead, if you can pause, if you can really inhabit someone else's point of view, you might be able to build something that better describes the real world.
0: Yeah. And at the heart of it, you're connecting with someone very easily by saying, I see you, I understand you, but I still want to disagree with you. And I I asked you for some sort of advice and, and your quotes in, in a new book I'm writing about how to have better conversations online and so helpful. And as you can tell from anyone listening, uh, for anyone listening that I've just mentioned three things there that I've, I'm have going to probably use in my day-to-day now. It's such a useful book. So thanks for writing it. Um, just very la- lastly then, um, what are you hoping people get from it? It, it? Did you have like a sort of audience in mind or are you just <laughs> hoping everyone you know anyone
1: so one of the most awesome things about kind of writing uh, critical thinking textbooks and things is that is that they get used you know in universities and schools and in unexpected ways and occasionally people write to me and say you know I'm using your book on my course could you clarify this or someone just wrote to me with a mistake and said you know here's I'm so grateful thank you so much I'm going to correct that in the next edition I hope it's useful to people I particularly hope that people who are embarking upon a career or studies, maybe people from not a massively privileged background who haven't had loads and loads of kind of expensive schooling. I really hope that just for some people out there, a book like this gives them a little bit more confidence in thinking for themselves, in throwing themselves into their studies, in in expressing their own opinions, in in standing up and saying, hey, you know, uh, I don't agree with this. I'm not sure about this. Here's what I think in just having the confidence to kind of participate in in you know the amazing world of kind of knowledge and and debate and understanding rather than feeling it's not for them. Mm. I it's a it's just a lovely thing it's a lovely thing to write a book and, and and feel that someone's kind of used it as a kind of tool that's given them a little little bit of of vocabulary or insight or confidence or they've just said, oh yeah, you know, actually um you know I do have the confidence to do that paper reply for this thing so I would I would love that and I'd love to hear from anyone who reads it especially if they find any mistakes which I can then <laughs> you know correct
0: <laughs> You know that you're hitting a kind of uh, academic audience if they're correcting you though <laughs> People always spot those but I I thought with um with that actually on the, on the kind of building an equal society really that is turning unknown unknowns into known unknowns is that that, I suppose that is the way that we do move forward for, for lots of people to all know the same information.
1: That's right. Yeah. I mean, you know, education is an indispensable part of democracy. And a sort of shared reality is as well. And one of the most dangerous trends we see at the moment in in, in democracies is rival realities, is kind of paranoid bad faith versions of reality in which a lie is repeated as truth, in which what you believe. And why you believe it is totally cut off from a common interest in describing what's actually going on. And um, this is perhaps more on the right than on the left, but on both sides, people are able, often supported by social media, you know, not not driven by it necessarily, but supported by, to shut themselves off in kind of worlds of consensus for of kind of baddies and goodies and simplifications, where there is no common ground and where you're not answerable to a kind of common test of effectiveness or empathy or compassion or humility, it's immensely challenging. It silences a lot of voices. And it's doubly difficult because, of course, there are always some people who refuse to talk to you in a civilized and respectful way. And when people when people turn discourse into violence, that, that's that's the point at which, you know, it becomes impossible to find a common ground. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm really conscious that it's very easy to sort of say nice things about listening to people and being respectful. And there's enormous amounts of horrible disrespect and intolerance out there. The philosopher Karl Popper made the point Many decades ago, it's important to be intolerant of intolerance if we want to support toleration. It's not a paradox. It's not a clever philosophical thing to see. Say it's a very basic point that if someone is violently intolerant of certain views or people, that is intolerable mm. if we want to have a a tolerant society. It's why it's so important, I think, to to try and find safe spaces in 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 a kind of meaningful sense of that word where people are able to come together and and respect each other as people and talk around common causes and common and strive to find common values you know it's not trivial to talk about things like safe spaces i think it's often trivialized but actually just like we need to pause and take the time to have a good conversation if we actually want you know people of all sorts to be involved in that conversation and heard they have to feel that they will be heard, that mm-hmm. there is something kind of fair and respectful and enabling about that space. You can't just say to people, oh, you know, free speech, say so you speak your mind, do your thing. That can be extraordinarily kind of counterproductive, actually.
0: Yeah. Well, there's so much more we could say on this. I mean, it's such a great book and it really got me thinking, as the title says. And I think that in a world of a lot of fear at the moment and a lot of uncertainty, it definitely gave me more of more of a confidence to go there with saying i don't know connecting with people more and just in general saying i'm i'm scared rather than just like lashing out at people (laughs) so thank you so much for coming back on and i'm sure you'll be a return guest in the future again soon thank Thank you you. so
1: much that's wonderful to hear
0: thank Thank you. you